everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. It's really good to have you with us today. We are in the second week of a series that our teaching team has been talking about for almost a year. The series is called Because You Prayed. And we've been wondering, what would God do if everyone in this church devoted themselves to prayer this year? Because when people pray, marriages get turned around, faith gets ignited, and problems become opportunities for God to show his power. In fact, in the Bible, there was a king named Hezekiah. He prayed, and 15 years were added to his life. A prophet named Elijah prayed and saw a little boy healed and a drought ended. And then in the book of Acts, it was the earliest Christians' bold prayers that led to thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. That's what happens when people pray. But if that's what happens when people pray, then doesn't it make sense that the opposite is true as well? That when people don't pray, marriages get stuck in a pattern of bitterness and resentment. Some of us are stuck in a pattern like that right now. That churches become stagnant and eventually close their doors. Problems feel overwhelming to us. Which is why I've titled today's message, Because You Didn't Pray. Because I wonder what we're missing out on in life as a result of not praying. Earlier this year, I woke up early on a Saturday morning. I got the kids dressed and got them breakfast, but I was just getting started. I said to my wife, Sarah, I said, I'm going to fix the dishwasher, which hadn't been shutting properly, and the treadmill where the belt kept slipping off. I started on the dishwasher, worked on it for like a half hour, practically took the thing apart, could not figure out what the problem was. That was fail number one. I then went downstairs to work on the treadmill, loosened the belt, got it lined up just right, tightened it with an Allen wrench until skin was practically coming off of my finger. That was fail number two. I went upstairs and I said to Sarah, I said, you need to call somebody to fix the dishwasher and the treadmill. <laughs> I got home a couple hours later and Sarah goes, I fixed the dishwasher and the treadmill. I said, you're kidding. What did you do? She said, well, I just unloaded the dishwasher. There was a knife blocking it from shutting, <laughs> which I swear I checked for that, by the way. And she said, with the treadmill, I just tightened it and prayed. I said, you did what? She said, I tightened it and prayed. And I said, and that worked? I said, I tightened that thing till skin was coming off of my finger. She said, did you pray? I said, did you pray? Here's my question. Why is it that we don't pray more often about things? I mean, what are we missing out on in life as a result of not praying? Now, let me qualify this and say that God doesn't fix every broken treadmill when you pray for it. My wife prayed to find her lost cell phone, and she never found it. So there. Felt kind of good about that when that happened. And I realize that a treadmill is a relatively small and trivial kind of problem, but we serve a God who's big enough to respond to both our small and our big requests as well. My point is simply to illustrate that whenever we're faced with a problem in life, be it a small problem like a treadmill or a big problem like a struggling marriage, we forget to pray. Why is that? We get stressed. We get anxious, we go online and we try to find an answer to our problem, but what if we prayed? And I'm not just talking about a Hail Mary over here and a Lord lay me down to sleep over there. I'm talking about coming before God on a regular basis and making your requests known. I can't promise you that God's going to answer every prayer the way you want him to, 
I can't promise you that God's always going to answer on your timeline, but I can promise you that 100% of the prayers that you don't pray won't get answered. Let me repeat that since it was a double negative. This is kind of a duh, but 100% of the prayers that we don't pray won't get answered. In other words, what do you have to lose by praying about something? One of the great tragedies in life is the prayers that go unanswered because they go unasked. Look what the Bible says about this in James chapter 4. James writes, the reason you don't have what you want is because you don't ask God for it. See, we think there's all sorts of reasons we don't have what we want in life. James says, here's the reason you don't ask God for it. Jesus said it this way. He said, you parents... If you're a parent, you can relate to this. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. He says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Earlier this summer, my second grade son, Hudson, came to me and said, Dad, will you please sign me up for tackle football? Centennial has tackle football in second grade. I said, absolutely not. I said, your older brother never played tackle football when he was in second grade. And besides, he's already signed up for football this year. That would just be too busy for our family. Next day, Hudson comes back. Dad, I want to play football so bad this year. Please. I said, what did you not understand about my no yesterday? The answer is no. We did this for two weeks straight. And finally, I looked at him one day, and I thought it would be such a gift to him if I said yes. So I did. Bad parenting? Maybe. Probably it was. But there's something inside every single father that wants to give good gifts to their children. Jesus says this. He says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? That is the heart of God. He wants to give you good gifts, but you have to ask. And not just once, and not just twice. There's actually a story in the Bible of a king who seems to have lost his life because of his lack of prayer. And this is one of the things that I love about the Bible. It's so real life it's gritty. Not every story ends with a, and they lived happily ever after. This story is about a king named Asa. He ruled in Jerusalem for 41 years in the 9th century BC. Now I realize when you're talking about someone who lived that long ago, they don't even really seem like a real person, do they? But Asa was a real person. He had real problems, real dreams, just like you and me do. And his reign began with a promise from God. God sent a prophet to speak to Asa, and the prophet said this. He said, the Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. Whenever you seek him, you will find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. So Asa hears this promise from God, and the text says that he took courage. Isn't that what a word from God will do? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I find myself stressed out, anxious about something, and then I read a verse in the Bible, and it's like I can feel my heart taking courage. This is why I read the Bible every day, because every day I need courage. I need to hear a word from God. 
In Asa's case, his courage led to action. He leads the whole nation of Israel to remove their false idols and repent of their sins. Look at how the Bible describes this scene. It says this, they, talking about the whole nation of Israel, entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all of their heart and soul. They shouted out their oath of loyalty to the Lord with trumpets blaring and horns sounding. Now, I picture this as a fairly dramatic scene. We sing a song frequently here at Eagle Brook called The Stand. And there's a part during the chorus when the band starts getting big. You know, the drums start kind of kicking in. And the lights are shining out into the room. And the chorus of the song just says, I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned. And sometimes when we're singing that song, I'll kind of peek out from the back. And I'll see some people and their arms are just lifted up to God. And then I'll see other people who, they don't feel comfortable raising their hands, which is perfectly fine. And they just, but they're singing their hearts out. You can just tell they are singing their hearts out to God. And then there's always the one guy in the front row holding his coffee like, huh, what are we doing here? But we love you, okay? (laughs) We love you too, okay? But that's kind of how I picture this scene that the whole nation of Israel is standing before God and they're like, God, our hearts are abandoned to you. We are committed to you. And then I love this next verse. I get kind of a kick out of it. It says this, King Asa even disposed his grandmother Makah from her position as queen mother because she had made an obscene Ashereth pole. He's like, sorry, grandma. Your Ashereth pole is way too obscene. I'm giving you the boot. Aren't you curious what was so obscene about her Ashereth pole? She's like 80 or 90 years old. I mean, what could it be, Grammy, you know, that was so obscene about this Ashereth pole? But Ashereth was the goddess of fertility. She was worshipped through sensuality and ritual prostitution, so you can kind of get an idea of what it was. Now, at this point, Asa might be the best king that Israel has ever known. He's led the nation back to God. He has kicked his naughty grandma to the curve. And he's kind of a stud of a king. But then all of a sudden, another nation threatens to invade Israel. What does Asa do? Well, I'm expecting him to gather the people together. Let's pray. Let's worship God. Instead, he goes into the temple of the Lord. He takes the silver and the gold that was in the temple and belonged to God, and he gave it to another nation, requesting backup and help from their army. He trusts in another nation's military power more than he trusts in the power of God. Now, on the one hand, that's kind of understandable because we do that kind of thing. If we're faced with a problem in life, we start thinking, how do I fix this? Who can I talk to that can help me fix this? But God wanted Asa to talk to him. And so God sends this prophet back to Asa. And the prophet says this. He says, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He says, what a fool you have been, Asa. From now on, you will be at war. Asa became so angry that he threw the prophet into prison. This is the whole don't kill the messenger kind of thing. And he began to oppress some of his people. Whatever happened to the whole, our arms are lifted to you, our hearts are abandoned to you, God. See, it's easy to come into church and have an emotional experience during worship. 
But then on Wednesday, when your life gets really stressful, you just forget about God. It's easy to say to God, God, my heart is abandoned to you. But then when somebody confronts you about your own sin, you get really angry about that. That's Asa's whole story. Except for one interesting detail that's found in the next verse. It's such an insignificant detail that at first when you read it, you kind of even wonder why it's included in the Bible. But it's the reason I wanted to teach this story. Look at what it says. It says, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a serious foot disease. Even when it became life-threatening, he did not seek the Lord's help, but he sought only the help from his physicians. So he died in the 41st year of his reign. So Asa gets this foot disease, and right away he goes on WebMD. Right away he goes on Mayo Clinic online. He sets up numerous doctor's appointments. He tries natural remedies. He tries medicine. He reads books. He reads blogs. He does everything he can to save his life except for one thing. He never prays. He never asks God for help, and he dies. Years later, another king named Hezekiah comes along. He becomes deathly sick. He prays, and God adds 15 years to his life. Two kings, one of them prayed, 15 years added to his life. The other one did not pray, and he dies. Now, I don't pretend to understand all of that, because sometimes people pray for healing, and they end up dying anyway. God's ways are higher than our ways. But I do wonder what we're missing out on in life as a result of not praying. In fact, I see two applications from this story that will hopefully give you a renewed and definite belief that God responds to prayer. That something happens when people pray. And not just once or twice, but pray bigger, bolder prayers over an extended period of time. Here's the first application. Prayer is the first resort, not the last. See, Asa always found something to turn to before he turned to God. When another nation was invading him, he turned to a foreign army. When he gets a foot disease, he turns to his physicians. For the record, by the way, if you walk out of here today and you think, you know, I'm not going to go see a doctor about that. I think I'll just pray about that. Then I have utterly failed you. Doctors are a gift from God. Medicine is a gift from God. You should go see the doctor. You should go on WebMD. Try natural remedies, you know, medicine. Do it all. The issue was not that Asa consulted his doctor. The issue was that he never consulted God. Prayer was never his first resort. I need to preface this next story by letting you know that my wife gave me permission to tell it to you. And whenever you hear a pastor say that, you know it's going to be a fairly decent story. I've actually told this story before, but several years ago, my wife was stripping all of our beds upstairs and putting the sheets down our clothes chute. She started with my pillow. I have no idea why she thought a pillow was going to make it down the clothes chute. But without even waiting to see if this pillow miraculously made it three stories down the clothes chute, she just started piling sheets and blankets on behind it. The pillow actually did make it about 10 feet down a 25-foot chute, but that's where it got stuck. And every blanket or sheet that came after it got stuck as well. After getting 10 feet worth of clothes stuck, Sarah just left it there, hoping it would miraculously fall down on its own. 
So a few hours later, I come back to, I start throwing something down the clothes chute, and I realize that it's more congested than rush hour traffic. So I grab a broom, start banging at it. I grab a kitchen tong and try to pick out each individual article of clothing. Bang my head, bruise my arm, throw the broom in frustration. Finally, as a last resort, I had an idea. I went down to my basement and I got two 15-pound weights off of my bench press. I went back upstairs and I chucked the weight as hard as I could down the clothes chute. The first weight got stuck. The second weight sent the whole thing crashing down to the ground. Kids, try this at home, okay? If your parents will let you, of course. Now, here's my point. Oftentimes, we treat our prayer life a lot like those weights. So something gets stuck in our life, could be your career, could be a relationship, whatever it might be, and we think, you know, I'm going to do everything I can in my own power to get this thing unstuck. Bang my head, bruise my heart, completely overwhelm and stress myself out. And then at the end of all of that, we think, you know, as a last resort, Maybe I'll grab the weight of prayer and I'll throw that down the hatch to see if maybe God can get things going again. Friends, prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is the first resort. In fact, there should be a rhythm to your life. Prayer, action. Prayer, take some action. Some people pray for a new job and then they sit around and watch the prices right all day. That's not going to do you a whole lot of good. But equally harmful is this mindset that says, you know, I'm going to configure this out on my own, and then if that doesn't work, I'll try prayer. You don't try God, you worship God. In fact, there should be some triggers or cues in your mind that tell you, I ought to pray about this. What are those triggers? Stress, anxiety, worry, fear. If you're experiencing any of those in your life, that should be your cue. I need to pray about this. Look what the Bible says about this in Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. If you do this, he writes, you will experience God's peace, which is more wonderful than the human mind can understand. The Bible says, don't worry about anything. You say, well, I don't know if that's going to happen because I worry about a lot of things. Great. Then you ought to be praying about a lot of things as well. Fear, stress, anxiety, those are not God's intent for your life. Those are the result of living in a fallen and sinful world. However, some of the most godly and prayerful people that I have ever met are people who have struggled with worry and anxiety for their entire life. But they have learned to use that worry as a cue to pray to God first. They've learned to use it as a trigger to make prayer their first resort and not their last. Here's the second application of this story. Prayer reveals what you really trust. Look at what the prophet says to Asa right after he makes this alliance with another nation. He says, because you have put your trust in the king of Aram instead of in the Lord your God, you missed your chance to destroy the army of the king of Aram. 
In other words, because you didn't pray, because you trusted in this other army more than you trusted in God, you missed your chance. I would hate to hear God say those four words to me. Jason, you missed your chance. You missed your breakthrough. You missed your opportunity. You missed your victory. And then look at what the prophet says next. He says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Before there were satellites, before there were drones, the eyes of the Lord were searching the earth. They still are. They're looking for men and women whose hearts are fully committed to him. And here's the deal. Prayer reveals what you really trust. Prayer reveals what you really trust. It didn't take God long to figure out that Asa really trusted in foreign armies and physicians more than he trusted in God. Psalm 20 verse 7 says it this way. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. That was Asa. Trusted in chariots and horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is that true of you? Do you trust in the name of the Lord your God? My guess is that you're not tempted to trust in chariots and horses, but you may be tempted to trust in your money. You may be tempted to trust in your job, your friends, your kids' achievements. In whom or in what do you turn to when things in life aren't going so well? Author Timothy Keller says this. He says, prayer is faith become audible. That's good. In other words, you, dis you discover what you really believe about God when you pray. Years ago, Dallas Seminary was facing bankruptcy. And so their professors gathered together in the president's office to pray. And when it was Professor Harry Ironside's turn to pray, that was his actual last name, he quoted from Psalm 50, verse 10, which says, God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. But then he prayed this. He said, so sell some of them, God, and give us the money so we can keep this school open. Now, God don't, normally doesn't answer prayer this quickly, but before they were even done praying, the president's secretary came into his office and she gave him a note that said that a $10,000 gift had just come in. The president turned to Harry Ironside and he said, Harry, God sold the cattle. And God must have quite the sense of humor because the money came from a Texas cattle rancher <laughs> who sold two carloads of cattle and gave the money to Dallas Seminary. Let me ask you, how big is your God? Is God big enough to heal your marriage? You think our marriages feel stuck. I mean, it feels so impossible right now. It would take a miracle for us to make this thing work. Let me ask you, is God big enough to heal your marriage? Is God big enough to heal your child? Is God bigger than your positive MRI or your negative evaluation? Is he bigger than your biggest sin or your biggest hopes and your biggest dreams? One of the questions that God will ask every single one of us is this. Is there any limit to my power? Is there any limit to what God can do in a person's life? Friends, I'm telling you, God is bigger than your biggest problem. 
He is bigger than your biggest dream. His grace is bigger than your biggest sin. Is there anything that's too hard for God in your life? Jeremiah says this. He says, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing, nothing is too hard for you. There is not a problem. There is not an issue. There is not a sin in your life that is too hard for God. But don't take my word for it. You need to taste this and experience it for yourself. In my hand, I have a box of Sour Patch Kids. And there are a few things in life that I really love. Love my wife, my kids, my parents. I love the Timberwolves and the Twins. Love Blue Raspberry Ices. And I love, love Sour Patch Kids. I mean, my mouth starts to water before I even taste one of these. As I'm opening up the package, I can feel my glands starting to hurt because they're so excited for what they're about to experience. Now, I could tell you how great Sour Patch Kids are. I could read for you the top three ingredients, which are sugar, invert sugar, and corn syrup, which is sugar. I could read to you other ingredients in here, like hydrochloric acid, a corrosive used to remove rust, paper potassium hydroxide, which is used to make alkaline batteries, and sodium hydroxide, which is a chemical used in detergents and drain cleaners, but that still would not capture the sweet and refreshing, <laughs> yet sour and tangy goodness of Sour Patch Kids. You would know with your rational mind, but you would not know with your sensing tongue. And that's just it. There are some things in life that you can know rationally, but never experience in your own life. Prayer is how you taste God's power. You can hear other people talk about the power of God in their life. You can hear stories about how God has answered prayers for people and how he's moved in their life in a powerful way. You can listen to me go on and on and say, nothing's too hard for God in your life. But until you pray, you will know that rationally, but you will not know it experientially. Prayer is how you taste the power of God. Psalm 34, verse 8. It's a great invitation. It says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's my invitation for you today. Would you just taste? Would you just come and taste God's power and see if there's anything that's too hard for God in your life? This past September, I started a prayer journal. I'd just gotten done reading a book by Mark Batterson called The Circle Maker, and I was really motivated to organize my prayer life. Up until that time, I would pray about something once or twice, but then I'd just kind of forget about it. And so I wrote down five different categories, personal other people, character, church, and, and what was the last one? I don't even remember. Family. Family was the last one. Five different categories. And underneath character, I would pray things like this. I would pray for faith. I'd say, God, give me faith that one day I look forward to seeing you face to face and I'm ready to die. I want that kind of faith. 
And I pray for boldness, that I would be willing to tell other people about Christ. And I pray for discipline and wisdom. And then for our church, there are specific cities that I'm praying we can put a campus in. And there are specific people that I'm praying that they'll come to our church and they'll meet Christ for the first time. And then I have specific prayers for my wife and for my kids. And my plan is to continue to pray those prayers for the rest of my life, even if I don't see God answering them. Because prayer is more about a relationship with God than it is about manipulating God to give us what we want. It's kind of like the little boy who was writing a letter to God for Christmas. There was a specific gift that he wanted, and so he wrote this letter. He said, Dear God, I've been good for about six months now. But then he thought about that, and he thought, that's not realistic. So he crossed out six months, and he wrote three months instead. And then he thought about it a little bit longer, and he crossed out three months and wrote down two weeks. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He walked over to his parents' nativity set. He picked up the statue of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He brought it back over to his table, and he started the letter completely over. He said, dear God, if you ever want to see your mother alive again... how some of us are with prayer? We think we can manipulate God into giving us what we want when we want it. But the Bible says that there are some prayers that God won't answer. For instance, in the book of James, it says if you're not praying in faith, if you're praying about something but you don't actually believe that God can do it, God's not going to answer that prayer. If you're praying with selfish motives, don't expect that prayer to be answered. If you have areas of your life where you are willfully disobeying God, your prayer life will not be powerful and effective. And that's because prayer isn't some incantation to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. It's talking to a person, a very wise person, which is why author Timothy Keller says this. He says, God is going to give you what you would have asked for. If you knew everything that he knows. In other words, God wants the very best for your life. He's not going to say no to prayer because he wants to somehow stick it to you. He wants the best for your life. But he knows things that you don't know. And so sometimes he says no. And thank God that he does do that. So don't get discouraged by unanswered prayer. Just taste. Just come and see if there's anything that's too hard for God in your life. Years ago, before Sarah and I were even married, we were talking about our parents and our families. I remember it was an Easter Sunday. And at the time, I wasn't really sure where my parents were in their relationship with Christ. I just wasn't quite sure about that. And Sarah's brother was really struggling. He was smoking weed. He was hanging out with a bad crowd in high school. Sarah's mom had anxiety issues that she was going through that were pretty severe. And her father had just relapsed back into drug use and alcoholism. And so we decided to pray for our families. And it kind of started out like any other prayer, where you pray, you know, Lord, we just pray for our family, that, that you would work in their life. But then something happened. Both of us started to cry and really cry out to God. It's one of the most powerful moments of prayer that I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I look back on that prayer today, and I see my parents who both have strong relationships with Christ. 
I have an assurance of where they'll spend eternity. They're watching this message right now at Coon Rapids. And Sarah's brother is one of the godliest people that I know. He's married. He's got a beautiful little daughter. He serves in his church. Sarah's mom is probably praying for me right now as I speak. She's a person who's learned to take her worry and anxiety and use it as a trigger to pray for other people. One of the most powerful people of prayer that I know. And Sarah's father got sober. After 15 years of Sarah praying, and at times feeling as if this was completely impossible and there's no way God is going to do this. He now helps lead our Quest 180 at the Blaine campus and I have never seen him doing better in his entire life. Friends, prayer is how you taste the power of God. In fact, as you leave today, we're going to hand you this little card and on the front there's a Bible verse And on the back side, there's an open space. And I want you to think of two or three areas of your life that you want to commit to prayer. And write those two or three areas down in this blank space. Put this card someplace where you'll see it. Maybe on your computer, in your Bible, on your dashboard. And then start to pray about these things. Not just once, not just twice, but pray about them for an extended period of time, maybe even for the rest of this year. And let's just see what God does. Let's see the marriages that get turned around because God's people prayed. Let's see the high school students and junior high students who God uses to influence their classmates because God's people prayed. Let's see the hundreds or thousands of people who put their faith in Jesus Christ because God's people prayed. Prayer is how you taste the power of God. Let's all stand together at all of our campuses and let's do that right now. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for that person here who has some area of their life that just feels stuck. And to them, it feels like it would take a miracle to heal that wound, to fix that family, to restore that relationship. It would just take a miracle. God, I pray that as we begin to pray and we begin to ask you, we begin to turn to you for help, first and foremost in our life, that we would taste your power, that we would see that nothing is too hard for you in a person's life. God, may we as a church be known as a people who pray and a people who celebrate our God who answers prayer, our God who loves to give us good gifts, who wants to withhold no good thing from us when we ask. And so God, we ask you right now to move in our lives to show us your power, to show us your glory, to do the things that only you can do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you want to get started on that right now, every single week we've got a group of people down front here to pray with you. And so if there are specific areas in your life that you need prayer for, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great day, everybody.